0: Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Good morning, we've got a three-fourths full house. One little pocket back there in the back, but we do have some families who are sick. I want to pass that along to you. We have several families in our congregation who have been dealing either with stomach bugs um, or upper respiratory infections or COVID. Um, it is a mix of a lot of different things, so please be praying for those uh, that you do not see here. If you think of them during the week, it would be nice to send them a card or give them a call or send them a text. We text now, right? Just a little quick text. I'll, I'll share this little tidbit. This is this is just a, a side note, but uh, I never used a text message until I got into ministry, um, and this was my first pastorate in 2010. 2010, I had church people texting me, and back then it cost you 25 cents every time someone sent one to you. It wasn't you sent it; they sent it to you, and you got charged 25 cents. So that's when I started getting a texting plan back. If you remember those back in the day, and so it's a uh, our world changes, doesn't it? Doesn't it? well, God bless you. I'm glad that you are here this morning. Are there any children that need to be dismissed at this time? Okay. All right. Well, God bless the the young ones um, as He is growing in these young ones, and I am impressed that our uh, children uh, have memorized Isaiah chapter nine, nine, nine verses what seven through eight two, and the nine, one to nine, seven. nine one to nine seven. All right, and I believe on Christmas Eve this Friday night. Uh, our children will actually be ministering to us with some recitations of scripture and song, correct? Just recitation. Just recitation of scripture. So, uh, this Wednesday or this Friday night, let me encourage you, we will be here at five o'clock on Christmas Eve, December the 24th. It's our, what we do every year. Um, and this room is generally packed. Um, I've already spoken to a few folks who are not members of this church who, uh, come to our traditional worship because their church does not. So uh, they will be here with us on Christmas Eve. Um, and It'll be a wonderful time of celebration, a holy night as it should be. Amen? Amen? Amen. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This fourth Sunday of Advent is the last Sunday morning before we celebrate the birth of our Savior. The brokenness of God's fallen creation... Or at last, sees hope in the miraculous incarnation of God's Son. That's that's the joy of Christmas Day. This broken and fallen world sees hope, (laughs) sees hope. As we celebrate Advent, we have lit the fourth of the Advent candles this morning. We will light the fifth candle, Christmas Eve night, the Savior's candle. And so today's text in Luke chapter 1 is going to give us a glimpse into the mysterious, yet the revealed truth. I want to say that again. This text in Luke chapter 1 today, verses 26 through 38, is going to give us a glimpse into the mystery of the revealed truth. Now that sounds contradictory, doesn't it? The mystery of God's revelation of salvation and the incarnation of His Son. Today's text will give us a glimpse into what this is. It's the incarnation of God Himself as He steps into humanity. We have to remember that the truth of Christian ideas, the truth of the gospel is that God the Father and God the Son are not two separate gods. They are one. And so what we remember and celebrate this week is God himself stepping into humanity. That's the that's about the closest way to describe the incarnation. We're going to be looking at some of that today because this, as God steps into humanity, as, as this mystery of incarnation unfolds, it results in the birth of the Son of God who is fully human yet fully holy and divine. At the same time, that blows my mind. It probably blows yours too. And that is why it's called the mystery of the faith. That's why this is called faith. So let's read today's passage. If you're able to stand, let's stand and read, or I will read Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. This is the divine message of God given through the angel Gabriel And the angel departed from her. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we read this very familiar passage at this season of the year annually. It is the, 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 the recounting of the encounter that Mary, the mother of your son, had with Gabriel, your messenger, describing and declaring and prophesying to her what is to come, the plan, dear Father, that you had, not just for her, but for us as well. And so, God, this morning I pray that you would speak to us in your word. Dear God, that you would speak to us through this encounter between Gabriel and Mary, that you would cause us to begin to fathom, just a hint of what this means, this reality, dear God, that you stepped into humanity and you came, your son Jesus Christ was born, it blows our minds It's we because we are so finite in our thinking, we are so limited in our understanding, we need you this morning. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Please have a seat. We live in a day where the ideas of miracles are prevalent in the churches and in the quote-unquote Christian media. When you look at Christian television, when you look at Christian radio, when you look at Christian Internet now, uh, the ideas of the teachings of miracles still seem to dominate in many ways. Many souls, I will argue, have been led down a path a misguided path of destruction because of this. It's through the idea that miracles happen for our sake and our sake alone. And the teaching has been distorted that the the, the truth of miracles is now something that we ask for. It's as if we can ask for a miracle in the same way that we ask Amazon to send us whatever we want, whenever we want. That's really the false and distorted teaching of the miraculous to where really we redefine what the miracle is. Miracle is now whatever you want, whenever you want, and that is not the definition of miracle. This passage in Luke's account of the encounter from God's, his primary messenger, the angel Gabriel, to this young girl Mary who would give birth to the Son of God, this passage tells us what it must have been like. Luke here is retelling what Mary must have told him. This is Mary's personal story shared with Luke, who is the gospel author. She must have told him this story of her first son's birth. Really, when you look at chapters 1 and 2 as a complete whole, it is almost as if... Luke is opening up his gospel account by talking to Mary first. And Mary retells what only a mother would know. Isn't this amazing? We see this in Luke chapter 2 verse 19 where Luke tells us, but Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. Mothers are their treasures in your heart that only you know when it comes to the birth of your children. No one else knows it but you. And Mary has shared that with Luke, and Luke has now shared that with us. There's no other way to have this story other than Mary telling it. And so this passage is not some third-party Retelling of a story through different levels of retelling a story. You know how that happens. The more you retell a story, the next person retells it, and the next person retells it, and the next person retells it. This is a first-hand account from Mary herself. So we can count this as authoritative. We can count this as true. We can count this as real. Right? This is the first-hand account from the closest person connection to the divine conception of the Son of God. Only Mary, the mother, can testify to how a baby is conceived. Only a mother can tell us who the father is. Amen? Is that true? Only the mother can confirm who the father is of her baby. And this passage is Mary's first-hand account of her. Her conception, no human father conceived this child. Jesus has the title of the son of God because his true father is God, the father almighty as his Holy Spirit overshadows her and the power of the most high causes her to conceive. We have to remember that this is not the way the pagan gods and mythologies used to tell the stories of divine conception. In the pagan myths of, of Greek and Roman mythologies, even the, uh, even, even the Persian mythologies, the Far Eastern mythologies, they all have stories of gods having children with women, but those stories are vile and vulgar, and honestly, a lot of them are rape stories. That's not what's happening here in Luke chapter 1. This is a divine, glorious encounter of God Almighty overshadowing Mary. It's a deep thought that is not to be taken lightly. That's what Mary is sharing here. So what is the most important point here is to remember... The fact that the virgin conception and the birth of Jesus Christ is a miracle, but not just any miracle. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle. And let me share with you what C.S. Lewis says about the incarnation. He says this, one is very often asked to present whether we, we could not have a Christianity stripped or as people who ask it, say, freed from its miraculous elements. A Christianity with the miraculous elements suppressed. But you cannot possibly do that with Christianity because the Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, what is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. It is precisely one great miracle. If you take that away, there is nothing specifically Christian left. There may be many admirable human things which Christianity shares with all other systems in the world, but there would be nothing specifically Christian. You see what C.S. Lewis is helping us to think here? We have to remember that the foundation of Christianity can be seen in this encounter with Gabriel and Mary. Apart from this grand miracle, Christianity has no legs to stand on, none. Without this grand miracle of the incarnation, Christianity is nothing more than another religion that humanity has made. You see the unique characteristic of what we are celebrating this week This is what makes Christianity the truth. This is not some man-made religion. This is not some some moral system of good behavior. This is a divine encounter with humanity. A grand miracle beyond all miracles. Apart from this, what we are doing here this morning as we worship together is futile. You understand the weight of the incarnation here. Let's take a look here at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Let's notice the scene of this announcement, the announcement of this grand miracle. Luke tells us, We're going to have to go back a little bit further. He tells us in verses 24 and 25 that Mary's cousin Elizabeth conceived a child six months prior to this moment. Elizabeth's conception was itself a miracle, but not the grand miracle, not the grand miracle that Mary encountered. Elizabeth, we know, was Zechariah's wife, the priest who was an old man. We see that back in chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And so this aging couple of Zechariah and Elizabeth is described by Luke in verse 6 to be righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. An aging couple. And Elizabeth's conception was miraculous, and an angel of the Lord, and this is not Gabriel delivered God's message to Zechariah about the conception and the birth of who would be John the Baptist. And it says in verse 17, this is what the angel said to Zechariah, that John the Baptist would go before him, who is Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That right there was a miracle itself. It was a prophecy of divine importance, A, a conception of a woman and a husband who were beyond childbearing years. That's a miracle. But the unique blessing for Elizabeth and Zechariah was that the conception of John was of two human beings who were beyond childbearing ages, and the blessing of God for them was that this birth would take away Elizabeth's reproach and shame. That's a miracle. But it's not the grand miracle. Elizabeth's shame was redeemed, through God's gift, and all of it was prophesied to come, and John would be the Elijah who heralded the coming of the King, Jesus Christ. That's a miracle. It's a prophecy that fulfilled. It's an amazing ha- work of God in humanity. But let's compare Mary's conception with, with Elizabeth. Look down in verse 31, and this is the words of the angel Gabriel to Mary, as the angel tells her not to be afraid, verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. What's the difference here? I mean, uh, one is that... The angel who told Zechariah what was going to happen, told Zechariah the father what the name of his son was going to be. Here this encounter is with Mary the mother, the favored one of God. And this encounter with God's primary messenger, who is Gabriel, occurred prior to Joseph taking Mary into marriage. And I think we can see this because we have Matthew's account of an angel of the Lord who spoke to him and encouraged this young husband to be in Matthew chapter 1 verse 20, to not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So I think the encounter here in Luke chapter 1 occurred prior to the angel talking to Joseph. Don't know the time frame. They're probably pretty close time frame. But we know that this encounter with Mary, I think we can conclude happened before because by the time of the encounter with Joseph, Mary was already found to be with child. So probably probably several months gap here. But Mary's conception was to be from the act of the Holy Spirit coming upon her. We don't have that detail about Elizabeth. Elizabeth's conception was with her husband, Zechariah, albeit a miraculous conception of its own. Mary's conception was because the Holy Spirit came upon her. Much different. No man would be involved in Mary's pregnancy. And we're going to get into the significance of that here in a minute. Only God the Father would cause this virgin to bear a child, and that's why this is the grand miracle, and this is why it goes much deeper than the unspeakable scandal of the pregnancy of an unmarried girl. And it would be scandalous, but the grand miracle goes much beyond that. The the miraculous conception of Jesus is the starting point of the grand miracle that is what we call Christianity. Anyone who is be, Actually, let's go. He who is beyond all time and space. Can you fathom that? He who is beyond all time and space. He who is uncreated. He... Who is unchanging? And the term is immutable. God does not change. He's the same always. He does not progress in his thinking. He does not progress in his encounter with humanity. God is unchangeable and beyond all time and space. He is eternal who created all of this material existence that we know, and he who orchestrates all of this natural creation. You you, you getting the picture that we're painting here? This he descended into his own cosmological order and stepped down into the limits of time and space into the limits of physical reality, came into the natural world and descended further into human nature. This human nature that has fallen, this human nature that is separated from the Creator, the Creator Himself, He who is beyond all physical reality, all time and space, steps into His physical creation the natural order that is, that is fallen. That he did not create as fallen, but fell after his creation. He descends further into death. Death that only human nature knows. Ponder that. God who is eternal, who has no end, now steps into the reality of death that is not part of his nature, into the physical reality that is not part of his nature, into the fallenness of this physical, natural world that is not part of his nature. This is the grand miracle. And it doesn't stop there. This is what we're reading here in Luke chapter 1, the the, the grand Conception, the, the incarnation of Christ in this young girl, Mary, is just the beginning. Because as this creator descends further and further and further down and down and down into human nature and, and existence, he eventually rises again, resurrecting not only himself, but as he comes up, he resurrects nature with him. All of creation is redeemed by this grand descent. But the descent is not just to the point of the virgin conception. The descent continues even after the conception through the miraculous birth and further down into the living in the human nature, albeit a perfect human nature, further down still to the real suffering and the death when the crucifixion. But the resurrection, that is the second part of this grand miracle that I don't want us to miss. God, the perfect and holy creator, the father almighty, he raises the fallen natural world and the fallen human nature with him as he raises the fallen human nature in this overcoming, he overcomes the penalty of sin and in so doing, he overcomes death and he elevates human nature and the natural world with him as he does all of this. You see this? You know, cause, cause, Let's just be honest with ourselves. If we think about the many years that we have heard the Christmas story, what is the emphasis? The emphasis is that God has come to bring peace to each individual person. We have taken Christmas and made it an individual encounter. It is a gift of God, yet we have to understand this is much bigger than you and I. This is the grand miracle of the incarnation. The grand miracle is that the incarnation is this divine nature stepping into the carnal nature, the natural nature. And this natural carnal nature is redeemed by the transcendent divine. Have I caused you all to have headaches yet? Because if you have to sit and ponder the nature of all that is happening in what Gabriel is telling Mary, your brain will explode because this is beyond our understanding of what reality is, but it is reality. It's the very foundation of Christianity. It's the foundation of our salvation and hope. Without this grand miracle, all of human nature would remain in the darkened and fallen state that we find ourselves in. You you understand the implication here. If this incarnation had not occurred, we would be hopeless and falling even deeper and darker into the, the descent of sin and this world that is in decay. You understand what God is doing here? Humanity would be left in a failed effort to redeem itself, an impossible task. We cannot redeem ourselves, much less redeem a creation that we had nothing to do with. That's why this is the grand miracle. This is why the incarnation of Christ is so pivotal to the Christian's existence. It is at this point in history, at this point of eternal purpose, that hope arrives. It is this point of the incarnation that the divine creator shows that he has not left his fallen creation behind, that he was always and is always now intricately involved in the natural world as its creator, as its sustainer, as its redeemer. He has not left us. That's the beauty of this. So let's not confuse this biblical truth with the false idea that God is in everything. And this is what the false idea of pantheism believes. They will say that all of the natural world contains God's presence. That's not what we're talking about either. If you look back in the history of ideas, if you've ever heard of Barack Spinoza, The Spinoza's God, his theory was that God is in all things and all things are a reflection of God. That's pantheism and a heresy come from the pit of hell. That's not what we're talking about here. The creation is not God. God, the creator, steps into his creation. Through the incarnation, God steps into the natural order to raise the fallen nature that we as human beings caused to raise it to a redeemed state. And this shows the power of God's omnipotent hand. You know what omnipotence is? That's his powerful hand. It shows his omnipresence. That means his being everywhere at all times. It shows all of this. It shows that although the fall of the first man and the first woman isolated them from God's presence, God never isolates himself, and he initiates the redemption by descending. Understand that. God does not abandon his creation. He does not abandon those created in his image. That's the grand miracle. Christ descends from this divine throne. And we see this in Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight. He descends as an act of humility, as an action of divine sacrifice for others. And those others are you and me, his church. So how do we see this humility in the incarnation? In Luke chapter one, verse 35, let's read the words of Gabriel. His announcement and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. If you, if you take notes in your Bible and you have not underlined verse 35, I would encourage you to do so and ponder the depths of this announcement and what Gabriel is saying to Mary. Gabriel's announcement to Mary describes how this grand miracle resulted in Jesus' divine nature and human nature, both as his essence. When we say that Jesus is both human and divine at the same time, Luke chapter 1 verse 35 describes that. The theological idea here is known as what called the hypostatic union. If you're taking notes and you want to go deeper in this, the hypostatic union is what we're talking about here. It is important for us to remember that the truth of the incarnation is that we seek to worship during this week of Christmas celebration. This right here in verse 35 tells us the truth of what the incarnation is and why we worship. Gabriel explains to Mary the grand miracle of Christianity is this very real truth of Mary's conception. How can a woman, a young girl, a young girl, a young girl conceive a baby having never been with someone else? See, Mary's conception... Rather than it being the result of two people uniting as a husband and wife do, as a mother and father are, the child Jesus Christ comes into this human existence by the power of the Most High. That's the thing to underline. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will what? Overshadow you. See, the skeptic of Christ's incarnation questions how any human being born of a woman could be sinless, especially if Mary the woman is under the original sin, the curse of the original sin of Adam and Eve. Every human being born and every precious child in this room is born under the curse of the original sin of the first man and the first woman. So you would have to be, a, if you were a skeptic, you're going to ask, well, Jesus was born like any other baby. He must have been born in sin like everybody else. Mary had the sin nature. Why did Jesus not? You ever ask yourself that question? Verse 35 tells us why. Why this is, the, why this is not, why this is a miracle. The first words of Gabriel in Luke 35 shows us that the Holy Spirit comes over Mary and brings the power of the Most High, and the the key word here is to overshadow Mary's sinful nature, which is the state of all human nature. The idea of overshadowing her is overshadowing the sinful human nature. Does it mean that Mary becomes sinless? Does not mean that Mary's sin is eliminated from her essence? It means that her sin nature is overshadowed by the holy nature of the Most High. That's how Jesus is born sinless. You see what we're talking about here? Mary's sinful nature is overshadowed. Remember that the grand miracle involves the descent of the Most High, God Almighty, into nature, more particularly into the fallen nature. And the true miracle is defined as that event which cannot occur by natural means. That's what a miracle is. A miracle is any event that cannot occur by natural means. And if Mary, a virgin, conceives a child... That is beyond natural means. <laughs> you see the point? So anyone who claims that they are asking for and claiming their miracle, really what they're wanting? They're wanting what they want by natural means, and they're slapping the name miracle over top of it. And they've redefined what miracle is, and it's a false definition. A miracle is that which occurs beyond natural means, and really a miracle is that which It cannot occur by natural means. That's the definition of miracle. That's why miracles are so few. This is why miracles do happen. We cannot cast out the ideas of miracles because that is a reality we cannot avoid. Yet miracles do not happen because you and I want them to. They happen when God wants them to. So how can a young girl who has never been with a man conceive a child? How can a young girl who carries the curse of original sin bear a child who would be sinless? The only way for this to occur is what Gabriel describes in verse 35. The overshadowing by the power of the Most High is how the sin of Mary does not affect the human nature of Jesus the Christ child. Therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That's it. That's it. God is holy. The holy nature cannot be born as the fallen nature of humanity is born, carrying with each birth the original sin of the first woman and the first man. Mary's human nature would be this. And the power of the Most High overshadows it. This grand miracle of Christ's incarnation What could never happen in the natural world did happen once in a particular place, in a particular time with a particular young girl. All of the miracles that occur in Christianity, including Jesus's mighty signs and wonders, the miracles through the apostles, the wondrous miracles scattered throughout Christian history, and even every human soul that is transformed into a willing and repentant soul stems from this one miracle. You ask, how can someone's sinful nature, someone's selfish will be transformed into a humble, repentant, and transformed will in the likeness of Christ? How does that happen? Cannot happen by our own will because it is a sinful nature it must happen this way. All miracles stem from this one miracle in Luke chapter 1. Even the miracle of salvation must stem from this. So let's wrap this up. In verse 37, Gabriel tells Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's the grand miracle, isn't it? Nothing will be impossible with God, including the redemption of His fallen creation, the redemption of His people, you and I. Nothing is impossible with God. Notice that it is not humanity saving themselves. This is the grand miracle. Nothing is impossible with God. He can save us. He does save us. That's the grand miracle. It's impossible for us to grasp this grand miracle apart from God telling us what it is. It's impossible to see that the incarnation, the grandest miracle of all is here. When we read of the first man and the first woman's fall from God's grace back in Genesis chapter 3, remember, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God speaks a curse over that which he has spoken into being. He spoke a curse over, ser- over the serpent. He spoke a curse over the woman. He spoke a curse over Adam. And that curse carries over into all of the natural world. This is why the rocks cry out. The serpent is cursed beyond hope. Yet the first woman is cursed with a guarantee of hope that salvation would come through her offspring. You remember that in Genesis 3, 15? Right here in Luke chapter 1, this is where this now comes to that. This is where it is fulfilled. It's now going to happen. The curse spoken over the first man brought a continual battle with thorns and thistles. Men, how many of us know that battle? We battle with thorns and thistles. That's the natural world. But the curse. That would be overcome by the birth of the offspring to the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. This offspring would crush the head of the serpent and thus restore the creation and even the thorns and thistles back to God's intended glory. And the man would no longer battle the thorns and thistles of the broken and cursed earth of the fallen aspect of nature. You see where this is headed? This is all because of the incarnation. It's fixing it all. If the natural world was all that existed, if there were no divine reality of God, if there was no divine reality of the holy, then what happens in the natural world will only bring despair. There is nothing more. This is why secular-minded people, they think like a naturalist. They run scared when the natural order Falls apart. They run scared when natural disasters occur because they cannot see beyond the physical natural world. When a natural phenomenon of disease and even the pandemic takes root, the natural world is broken and the natural world is finite. But if you cannot think beyond the natural world, you will be, you will actually go mad. And this is the hope of the, of the gospel is that there is a reality, a truth that is beyond this natural world. And the incarnation shows us that this loving creator God, who is righteous and holy, steps into this broken reality that we made to fix it but also to show us that there is a divine and eternal hope, a divine and eternal reality beyond this natural fallen world. This is part of what the incarnation is so significant. A young girl conceives and gives birth to the Son of God, and the incarnation shows us the grand miracle of Christianity. Let's think about this as all natural things, all organic things will eventually descend into lifelessness. And it all returns back to the earth from which it came. If that's all there was, what's the hope? The resurrection of Christ, though, after the full descent into humanity, after the full descent of Christ from conception to birth to life and then to death, Suddenly, there's a rise of the holy incarnation of Christ, who is both organic, natural flesh and divine formlessness. This overcomes the lifelessness, the death of the natural world that we all face. Isn't that Doesn't that bring you joy? I hope so. So there is hope for a fallen world. There is hope for a fallen humanity and that the joy of the birth now has the joy and the hope of eternal life. And that's what this incarnation does. It brings us the conception of Jesus Christ and shows us that we are no longer distant from God. And we are reminded that God is near. And if you're taking notes, Acts chapter 17, verse 27, and Jeremiah 23, 28. And actually the idea of God being near is also found throughout the Psalms and many of the prophets. God is near to all of us. And the incarnation reminds us of that, that God never abandoned us. The last thing I want to point out here, and we'll close with this, is that there is a selective nature here of the incarnation that we have to understand as well. All of Christianity is selective. You know what I mean by that when I say that? All of Christianity is selective. It's not random. Its nature is not universal. And its nature is not however the natural world and the wildness of the world is. There is an order to it. There is a selective nature to it. The incarnation reflects this. The whole thing narrows and narrows and narrows to a fine point in time and place coming down to a particular Jewish girl at her particular time of prayer. It's possible that the angel Gabriel comes to, uh, comes to Mary in her quiet time. This is a specific time and place that this happens. God sends his primary messenger, who is Gabriel the angel, to this fine point in time and space to a particular girl, a selective point in time, a selective girl. All of God's created nature is selective. The cosmos, all of God's created order is selective. It is quite selective. Honestly, it's undemocratic. All of nature does not choose what it wants to do. It is ordered the way God orders it. In a particular place, in a particular function, in a particular way. The incarnation is no different. Selection is a part of God's created order, not the evolutionary selection of Darwin. Right? We've got to remember, when we talk about selection, we're not talking about Darwin's evolutionary selection. We're talking about God's created order, that things are selected and put in a particular place and a particular time for a particular purpose. The selective nature of Christianity is not wasteful as the natural world is wasteful. The people who are selected to be a part of God's divine story are in a sense, let's think about this, they're unfairly selected. They didn't have a voice in it. Did Mary have a choice in this? I don't think so. I don't think Mary had a choice to tell Gabriel and to tell God, no, I'm not doing this. I think God would say, Mary, I love you, but I've chosen you for this purpose. And and when Mary struggles with it, the compassion of Gabriel eases her mind. Doesn't mean that when God selects us for His divine purposes. It doesn't mean we won't struggle. We will. We have doubts. We are natural, physical, finite creatures who do not understand what the divine is doing. <laughs> we will have questions. But we are selected as God selects. The people who are selected here to be part of God's story really are unfairly selected but they're selected for an honor. They're selected for a supreme honor. They didn't choose it. It's actually a supreme burden. Can you imagine Mary's burden here? I am carrying God. I just want that to sink in for a minute. The burden of her soul of carrying God in her Womb had to be a weight beyond her capacity to carry. And as God selects her, He does not abandon her. He walks alongside of her. His Holy Spirit encourages her and supports her and gives her all she needs to carry this through. Because she was selected. The idea that fallen humanity has a freedom to choose whether to be saved by God's favor and of his forgiveness is a foreign concept here. And we see that in this biblical revelation, the selective nature of the incarnation reflects this perfectly. The young Mary did not freely choose this honor of bearing the Son of God. The young Mary did not seek out this position, but she humbly submitted to it. She submitted to it with fear, but with a faithful joy too. You see that? In her time with Gabriel, in her time of prayer, her heart shows humility, a sense of righteous obedience, not a willing choice that says, dear God, choose me. You see that? The grand miracle of the incarnation is that God is with us. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel from the prophet Isaiah. The incarnation is not just a good story. It's the grand miracle of our faith. It's the grand miracle of why we're celebrating this week. Y'all ready to take that home? <laughs> You ready to teach that to your kids? It's weighty, but oh, it's joyful. Amen. Nathan, come on forward and let's pray. Father God, we, we close this time in your word together. We, we, we close it before your throne and we ask you, dear God, to always, to always love us and carry the burden that you place upon us with us. If we are called to repentance, as all are called to repentance, and as we obey that calling, dear God, remind us that it all began as you who are eternal and perfect and unchanging, you step into our fallen nature and you redeem us. I pray, God, that you would allow the truth of that, the weight of that, to settle upon our souls and cause us to cry out to you with joy and with worship and adoration this week. I pray, God, that we would praise you this week and that we would not allow the lies of the devil to cause us to be so busy and distracted that we miss the importance of the incarnation here. Humble us, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.